Apart Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guests today are Roman and Eugene from the Ukrainian band Ginger, who is really, really sick. Let's get this started. Roman and Eugene from Ginger, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. How are you guys doing? Hi, everyone. We're doing well. Thank you. I'm okay. Just, you know, had a, had a day uh, at home. Didn't go anywhere. It's all right here. Have been preparing for the, for the podcast. Thank you. And what about you, Roman? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice to have you guys here. Um, I'm friends with uh, your producer, Max. Max Morden, for anybody that is not familiar, over at URM, we had him on Nail the Mix a few months ago. Ginger Nail the Mix. And first of all, thank you guys for allowing that to happen. And uh, second of all, uh, you guys have a great producer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so I'm just curious from your perspective and we'll talk about we'll talk about guitar too, but just because normally I only talk to the producers when I do now the mix. I'm curious what it is about Max that makes you guys want to work with him. The reason I'm asking is because it's uh it's I think it's really cool when a band goes to the same producer over and over and they kind of develop their sound together. You know, sometimes bands will record with a producer once and then just go somewhere else. Like what is it about Max's working style that makes you keep going back? Well, first of all, I think it, it needs to be, it's need to say, it needs to say that we, we actually have been working with him for all these years since 2014 and we 13 I think even 13 yeah we we, we yeah. made the first song together with him with him in 2013 and after seven years we just know each other very well and uh, the main the main reason why it is so comfortable for us to work with Max is because we we just we're good friends we know each other very well we understand each other very well we, we share the same language we speak uh, Russian and uh, the communication is just very smooth. It, it, and it is important, I think, because you need to to discuss very, very tiny details, talking about arrangements, sound, mixing, everything. Yeah, and language barrier can be a big problem, in my opinion, just to, in order to understand each other in the right way. Yeah, but, you know, what's interesting, though, is I feel like even when there's no lang vocal language barrier between musicians and producers, sometimes there's still a barrier between their understanding of the music itself. So you could speak 
the same language perfectly I've seen uh, and still not be on the same page. But I, th- I feel like you guys are on the same page artistically too. So it's a whole other level of communication. I feel like when you guys do speak about music, you're understanding each other in an artistic way too, right? Yeah, that that's what I meant at first. Of course, it's yeah, just the language itself. Yeah, but also uh, this is what I started with. Seven years after working with uh, the same person for so long, it's it's just a bond between him and us. It, it, we we sometimes in the studio we even feel like Max is uh, another member of the band. Because he he definitely knows what we want and he knows how to make it real, how to implement this in the real life, he understands us and and understands us perfectly. So one thing that's interesting about Max is he was a I knew him first as a as a member of URM. He was one of the students and he was obviously one of the best ones. Like everybody paid attention to him because they knew his ginger recordings and other stuff he's done, but he was also just in the community. Everyone was like, this guy's badass. And one thing that I've noticed, whenever producers and bands stay together, usually, well, almost always this happens. The band keeps progressing, right? They add new things to their style, they get better, all that stuff. But the producer does at this also. So the producer also expands their abilities. I've noticed in the situations where, say, the band evolves and progresses, but the producer kind of stays the same, uh, those will be the types of scenarios where the bands start going other places. And you guys have added a lot to your style over the past many years. Yeah. So... What I'm wondering is when you're trying to expand your musical style, where do you go or what do you do in order to to do that? Like, do you start learning new styles of music? Would you say to yourself, I want to I want to incorporate more of uh, this style of music that we didn't have before? Or is it just you're just listening to new kinds of stuff and it just comes through? Like, where does it come from? It comes from, I don't know, just sitting, jamming around with the guitar and playing like, I don't know, is it? That's how I made my riffs. I don't know. I don't focus on this, on the like metal or not metal style. Like yeah, I think it's common for us all. We we just we do not really aim at writing this very part in this very style. This is not what we do. We 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 just let it flow. If something really hard and heavy comes, it comes naturally. And same for soft moments. Uh, it, it comes very naturally. It's not just because we sit and, okay, we want to play some something very funky in, in this part of the song. And then we try hard to write exactly what we planned. No, the process is absolutely different. It just flows. And if uh, in the middle, like, let's say in the middle of composing something, something like, Funky comes and it fits. We'll we'll let it go. We'll we'll stay with this. To cut it short, we do not plan our songs. We don't plan it like we'll play three pieces of extremely heavy deathcore and then finish with something soft. No, it it doesn't happen like this. Uh, we just let it flow and whatever comes. Especially, well, let me uh, take my own example. When I write a song and I just let it flow, I I, I might have a, some something, you know, a foundation, a few riffs, and then I start adding to these riffs something new. And whatever comes, I just try it, whether it fits or not. If it fits, 
doesn't matter how it sounds, soft or heavy, I, I just, I, I am with this piece, and they just keep on going after that, adding more and more, more pieces, until I think that this or that song is complete. Do you find that you um, experiment a lot when you're in the studio with Max, or do you kind of come with almost complete versions of the songs and then work on the actual final element with him? Most of the time, we, we have everything, like, more or less 99% ready, especially in terms of composition, structuring the songs. Yeah, and uh, with Max, we only add tiny details and some arrangements. I imagine that because your music is so complex that going into the studio without it being close to finished might not be the best idea. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had experiences like that with, uh, with bands that play complex music and they came to record with me but didn't have their, their stuff finished and uh, didn't always go very well. How long does it normally take you guys to write a song? Like from the moment that you have the first idea until... Like, yes, this song is 99% done. It's ready for the studio. Is there like a general amount of time it usually takes or are they all different? Yeah, we don't have time usually for write new music. Uh, a couple of last years we were on tours. So it was like micro EP we composed and recorded in two months, I think. Or one month and a half. Wow, crazy. Yeah, the <laughs> macro album we composed and record in, I think... Three months. Compose and record it in three months? Yeah, yeah. That's efficient. That's what that wow. is. <laughs> so <laughs> now I take a break. Like Vlad, uh, already our drummer Vlad, already composed a couple of, no, not a couple, so already five, six, seven songs. And I, I take a break a little bit to understand in what way I want to go in with new music. I, I actually think that helps a lot um, between writing sessions have you noticed that when you leave a certain amount of time between one song and the next or even um an album or an ep in the, the next you find that you sort of catch on to a different sort of um i guess vocabulary with your writing because i find if i leave more time then i don't sound like what happened before it kind of changes and manipulates by what's happening around me but the fact that you managed to write a whole ep in three months is actually fascinating to me it sounds really stressful. The whole album, John, the whole album in three months. And for the EP, it was EP a month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> How? God, so to fast. make it clear. Yeah. To make it clear. Yeah, I, I write two songs. Eugene write one song, Vlad also. And for album, we also work like three, three. composers. Do you, do you guys write together or do you just sit in different computer spaces and write by yourselves and then... Different places. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we write separately. Uh, we There are songs which just come from me, from Roman and from Vlad. Yeah. And the, I think this is the reason why it is it was possible for us to write within su such short period of times. Because the material come from three different sources. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just work on the arrangements together and our own lines, bass lines, guitar parts, everything. Yeah, and also talking about, about vocabulary, this is this is what John mentioned. Uh, when you have these certain gaps in between releases, uh, it doesn't really mean that it, it took us only three months to write an album. We were collecting, I think, every single uh, member of the band was collecting material, was collecting vocabulary. Him <laughs> not, <he> not <laughs> me, me, yes. I just, I just I had some pieces already. Yeah. By the time we sat down 
here in Kiev and started writing for Macro, I had some pieces prepared, you know, something long, uh, long forgotten, I would say, something which was put aside uh, on the far shelf. But then I just was ready to write and I had these pieces just to start and it helps a lot. Do you guys label your stuff when, because obviously three months obviously is not a long time to write a record, but you said you went back and had some old material um, that you could go back to. And I found it quite interesting that a lot of people don't label what they've written um, beforehand. They completely forget about it. Whereas I've got kind of like a system where if I think something's bad, I'll label it in red. If I think it's something's okay, but not finished, it's in yellow. If it's finished, then I love it, but it's got nowhere to go. It's in green. Um, and that's within like my DAW, like Cubase or, you know, Logic or Pro Tools. And I was wondering if you guys did something similar or maybe exported riffs and like had them on like a, you know, the names, like a, a date that you did it by with um, sort of explaining what it sounds like. I was wondering if you guys did anything like that so that you can go back to those old ideas. Yeah, we did uh, some funny names. <laughs> some funny names for all songs, and uh, I don't remember, but it was Angry Man and stuff like that. One song was Words of Wisdom was Angry Man, I think. Okay, cool. Copy paste, Janice. We had a song <laughs> yeah. in the in, back yeah. in the early days. We had a song labeled Janice, after that character from Friends TV series. There was Janice, and we somehow <laughs> labeled it Janice. But uh, labeling it like good, bad, or very good. Uh, I, I don't think we do this. Me personally, no, I am not. And uh, I only, I, I just do not say bad things. If I think something is good, I I may put it aside. Thank you. But I do not say bad That's things. That's what I do too. <laughs> I just, you guys delete it. Me and, me, me and John Brown have a r- philosophical disagreement about this. I've always believed in throwing away bad ideas and just, you know, throw them to the garbage where they belong. But Brown believes in keeping everything because one day you might need it. And uh, I've always thought that trash is trash. Like, what? No, 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 no. So, like, okay, this cup right here, when I finish this coffee, it's going to be trash. Why will I get this cup out of the trash in six months? Well, it's it's (laughs) music. No, 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 but it's. It's if you think about it, like you might have written three notes that might inspire you to write something really great, or it might work with something that you've done later. And yeah, that riff that you wanted to throw away might be completely shit, but those it might have three notes in it that might inspire you to write what you need for your new song. No, I know, I know, I understand. I think you're just stupid. <laughs> I am not saying you're wrong, John. I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just not the way I do, and that's it. Yeah. Everyone, everyone has different words. Yeah, maybe you're yeah. right. Uh, may, you and even more, you quite possibly you are right. Yeah, but I'm probably not. But it's okay. <laughs> you are just. You might be just more well. You're better organized than me. <laughs> I am bad organized. Yeah. Bad, badly organized. Oh, dude, no, I am most certainly not better organized. <laughs> Also, we used some old riffs back in the days with still roll over song. And yeah, I find in Guitar Pro, I find the riff, oh, in new tuning, it starts to sound like, like a new riff and like, oh, let's go. <laughs> exactly. Like... I've, I've done this as well. Like there was a riff in um, the song Empty Vessels Make the Most Noise that I just couldn't make work in that song. And I ended up using it in either Destroyer on the Amanuensis. Now, if I wouldn't have kept that idea, then I wouldn't have written that song. So it's it's like to me, working in that way makes sense. But I can understand why Al thinks that throwing away bad riffs is a good way to cleanse of the bad as well. So I guess it's all down to the mindset. 
Well, it's because I'm, I've never been afraid of not being able to make new and better ones. <laughs> Self-confidence. <laughs> Have you ever yeah, had three I, months to I write always, a record? I always though? feel, so I just, I always had this feeling like, okay, this kind of sucks. I've got something way better in me. I know I'll do something better later. And then I, but I understand what you guys are saying for sure. I like, I get it. I get I get why you save riffs. It, it makes sense. Um, okay, here's my question about that. One of the reasons that I would throw things away is because you know that feeling when you're writing something where it's like, fuck yeah, like this is awesome. And you get excited to be working on it because it's awesome. And, you know, time disappears and you're just, you get in the zone and you're just making something awesome. And then the moment fades and you got as far as you got with it. But I don't know how to make that that feeling come back for something that I wrote two years ago, right? Because I'm not in that moment of creation anymore. So I feel like when I take an old riff, it's kind of more just a clinical, it's like a clinical thing. And it doesn't feel, it, I don't get that fuck yeah, this is awesome feeling. and um, And that's why. Maybe that's a bad reason, but uh, that's that's one of the reasons why. But it's you. It's your reason. Uh, yeah. I don't mind it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also do both. I trash you do both. Okay. And, yeah, I do both. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you could think about it. Just because you thought it was shit in that moment doesn't mean it was actually shit. You're right about that. You might have just overthought thought it in that moment, and that's kind of what I'm saying. It might not be that you take the whole riff, but the notes in a certain order might inspire you to finish a certain song. So we know those moments when you say, yeah, fuck yeah, this part's cool. And then you get stuck. That's when I go back and listen to the old parts to see if anything will inspire to see where I could go. So Fair I enough. guess both both ways are right. <laughs> yeah, I agree, actually, John, because with time, uh, we change, our perspectives cha change, and our tastes change. And actually, you're right that at some point, something might seem to you very, very bad, but in a few years even, you you just accidentally come across with a piece and it, it sounds to you like, I don't know, the the, uh, the the best thing you've ever written. Of course it happens. Exactly. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah. That's happened to me too. Yeah. Do you have any songs out of curiosity? I'm curious, both Roman, Eugene, and then also Brown with Monuments. Do you guys have any songs that when you wrote them, you were, they were maybe not your favorite song or like you were like, sure that people weren't going to like it or you know if you have an album there's always going to be your favorite song and your least favorite song and sometimes there's some songs that make it through that you know maybe you're not the most excited about have you ever had that where you're just not into a song but then somehow it becomes a bigger song or over the years you somehow learn to love it and then it becomes one of your favorite songs has that ever happened I actually have an example. When we were writing that song, we actually, me and Roman, we were having a lot of argument about this and we couldn't complete it well and it took took a lot of time. And Roman was I even... No, no, no. Roman was even suggesting to take it off the album. And this... Ah, Spices. This is Spices, our biggest hit ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. That's exactly what I meant. So we wrote two, two uh, different ends of a song, I think. Yes. And it was like, I want another end of a song. And I wrote like, 
he wrote an alternative alternative uh, ending for the song and he wanted to change it and I was against this. I love it more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, and, and at some point he literally said word for word, let's take it off the album, let's write something else. <laughs> <laughs> But in that time we don't have time for that and we are like about to move from Lviv to Kiev to the studio. And we don't have time to uh, sound and pass the biggest hit <laughs> for Ginger, biggest song and a lot of views, but not my favorite. Yeah, I understand. It's happened to me as well. The song that I thought was going to be the biggest on one record, no one cared about. And then the one that I disliked the most became the biggest one. <laughs> which one's that? So uh, my favorite on the uh, Amanuensis was The Alchemist, which was my favorite track. Uh, I don't know why. It's definitely not mine. Oh, yeah, get fucked, mate. <laughs> no, um, and then, like, for example, Vanta. I'm, I'm just kidding. I wrote that song in five hours, the whole thing, and we tried alternate endings on it and stuff like that, and it ended up just staying as it was. But because I'd spent such little time on it, I just thought it was shit. Do you know what I mean? It's like that you're for battling if you, you know, you think that if you've spent three months on one song or, you know, two months working on it for like most days, you think that must be good because I've spent that amount of time on it versus when something flows out in a shorter amount of time, you kind of have the mindset that you haven't really worked on it hard enough. I don't know. <laughs> that's my, that's my feeling anyway. It's again about overthinking. I, I oh yeah, yeah of course. we just overthink and and people tend to overthink too i i actually it, it's a bit off topic that's okay when we released uh micro and macro within the same year and uh, it was obvious that we spent quite short time writing those songs there were some people out there you know people go crazy or uh, in the comments section uh, on in on the internet in general and there were some people who were seriously speaking saying that we couldn't write a good stuff some something really good within that short period of time just for one reason because it was too short period of time and that's it yeah so uh, <laughs> you see it's kind, kind my of favorite songs was written like maybe day maybe a couple of hours my favorite perennial was perennial. like like this Yeah, also it was like... It's a hit. Song. Like one day, I think, one day I spent with the song. I clearly remember he brought, he brought the song and he, he literally wrote, wrote it within one day. Yeah, it's uh, it's mental how perception as musicians and our self-doubt <laughs> can think something's bad when it's probably good, right? Yeah, and then I sit like three weeks for the next song. <laughs> I sit in three <laughs> weeks for the next song. It's just hard to take things seriously when you know that you just basically shat it out in like a day. But you know what's interesting is with all the people that we've talked to on this podcast, you know, and also all the producers I've talked to and then years and years of studying famous songwriters. And I've come to the conclusion that a grand majority of popular songs in any genre are generally written pretty fast. But it's hard to it's hard to take yourself seriously when you write something really, really fast because like you said, you're overthinking and there's that voice that feels like you didn't do any work or <laughs> you could have done more or you were lazy. Like there's no way that it could possibly be awesome when I spent five hours on it, when I spent three weeks on this other song. Like this can't be 
it can't be like there's some sort of a disconnect in our mind between accepting that something's good and having it been created in a very short period of time. But it's a fallacy because we all know that art doesn't have anything to do with time. Art and inspiration are almost independent of time. So you can have, you can have the inspiration and be in the right mood and at the right time and just be, you know, it comes down like lightning and it just comes out of you perfect or close to perfect. And that's, it is what it is. It's hard to accept that, but I feel like that's how it happens for a lot of people. It is exactly the way it happens for, for the other people. This is actually what our drummer is having now. This is what Roman mentioned. This this motherfucker has written uh, seven, seven, eight songs during this lockdown quarantine. He, almost the, the entire album yeah, uh, is ready just because he's <laughs> writing nonstop. <laughs> this is the inspiration for sure. <laughs> Does he write with a guitar? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, he's one awesome. of those drummers. Yeah, play guitar, bass, all the shit. Yeah, yeah, well, one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. And also piano, he keyboards. He play keyboards like he have education, musical education for keyboards. Fuck, I hate talented motherfuckers piano, like piano. that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like another John Bocklin, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and Mike Malian as well. I wonder how he happened to, you know, be in a metal band and and enjoy metal because he has he has absolutely different origins. He he started playing very early, being you know a small kid because his mom sent him to sent him to music school, and then he graduated from the music school from music college, and he is an educated musician despite the others because we are just self self taught, self educated. Me, Roman, Tatiana. So how do you guys uh, communicate? Let's talk more about communication because sometimes people from music school have a hard time communicating with self-taught people because, you know, with music school, you get taught rules for communication, like talking in theory, talking, you know, whatever it is, uh, even charts. It's not about Vlad now. <laughs> Vlad, spe- no, Vlad speaks like, not music language at all. Like, oh, let's play this shit there. Oh, ah, okay. This. Yeah, it's 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 like easy. He's very down to earth in terms of theory. <laughs> yeah, doesn't doesn't <laughs> overload us with terms. <laughs> to be honest, we understand a bit of music theory on the level to be able to communicate with other uh, musicians. So we we are not yeah. completely, you know, zero in this way. In my personal opinion, and tell me yours. Uh, Music theory is designed in order so that people can communicate because in reality, you don't need theory in order to write better music. You need an ear and you need taste in order to write better music. But when communicating, if you want other people to play it with you, you need some way to tell them what's going on. Um, I mean, yeah, they could do it all by ear, uh, but theory just provides an efficient universally understood way to to communicate that. So I feel like, you know, whether you go to school or not, uh, having a, a basic level, a basic understanding, like you said, just enough to be able to communicate with other musicians, that's what matters. That's my opinion. Yeah, completely agree. I think it actually goes a little bit further than that now as well. I think that if you understand what's capable of other instruments, then 
not really knowing the musical theory names of certain things isn't necessarily required. And what I mean by that is if you have superior drummer on your computer and you can show the other elements of what you envisioned in a song, then it's easier for the for the person who's playing that instrument to understand what you're doing. So we use Guitar Pro. <laughs> oh, Guitar Pro. How do you guys use that program? I get so angry with that program. You, you don't like you don't like using it? To me, like I, I'm just quicker by picking up my guitar, recording it in the idea, and then just putting some drums to it, rather than writing out each of the individual notes. It's just the way that I was brought up. But I totally understand why people use Guitar Pro. I've seen people use it very effectively, and obviously you guys do too. But that program makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> I actually agree with you. Sorry to interrupt you. I agree with you that it is easier. Interrupt away. <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> just grab a guitar and, and record it. But it really depends because once it is something easy to play, then, yeah, it makes sense just to record it. Sometimes it's just, you know, it, it's hard enough to perform it in the way the others perceive it from the right perspective. Oh Perceive yeah, it. that's also true. Yeah, that's also true. So there you have two ways then. You you can practice it first and then record and then to the others, but it's again, not really efficient way because it will be faster to tab it and then share it with the others. And because of, oh, you are actually able to tab not only your instrument, especially me, I just play bass, I don't play anything else, but uh, with tools like Superior drummer or uh, just guitar pro, you are slightly multi instrumentalist because you can at least share with the others. With your, you can share your vision with the others, and this from this on the side, I think that this is definitely a wonderful tool if it is used this way, guitar pro itself. But of course, when it comes to composing with guitar pro, which actually happens a lot with many bands, then it's, uh, it's yes. the wrong way, definitely wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I agree with you. <laughs> I'll just throw that out there. I've always found that writing the music, the way you write music with the guitar or whatever is is the way to do it and then use guitar pro in order to document it and show other people because if you're writing something complicated you can't always count on them to be able to pick it up exactly just from the recording however the recording helps so that they understand how it's supposed to feel and what it's supposed to sound like but the tab is what helps them understand the exact notes i think they work together however what i've never understood is when people compose a guitar pro and then they try to uh, play it however yes i just we just had a guy named nick sampson on the podcast, who's a, he's a great producer and a great guitar player. And he's the dude who's done all the Polyphia records and, you know, they're incredible guitar players. He can play guitar on that level. And he works with those kinds of bands that are guitar motherfuckers. And uh, he's a guitar motherfucker. And he writes on Guitar Pro and then learns how to play it. And he's not one of those dudes that, like normally when I think about that, I think of guys that don't know how to play guitar. But then I meet guys like Nick Sampson who write on Guitar Pro and then are amazing guitar players. It breaks my brain because I don't <laughs> I don't understand how you can write on Guitar Pro and then pick up a guitar. It's so, it's backwards to me. It is, but again, I mean, people are different and yes, th this exactly. is their own way. And just, I, I, I just remember a thing 
actually all those classic music composers, not all this, those, but many of them were composing music on paper. Yes, they were. It's actually very true, and they didn't even hear it. They were just hearing it in their heads. They had a piano, generally, okay? Yeah. That's yeah. key. So they could hear the notes. They had the piano. I guess you can hear the notes through Guitar Pro. You're right that in the old days, people would write it down and uh, hand it to other people, and you were supposed to be able to hear it in your head just by reading the page. But, uh, but that's what I think recording is for. Back to why it's good to use both methods I think that recording replaces the need to be able to listen to sheet music in your own head. But I think in the old days, they were just doing what they had to because they had no technology. I bet you if Mozart was around now, he'd be using a computer. Of course. Of course he'd be. <laughs> yeah. Also, for the first time ever, I want to say that I've just agreed with using Guitar Pro. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've actually just thought about it. So imagine, so you know when you're recording and you have to transition between riffs or parts and you have to think about, can I logically go from this moment to this next moment and make it fluid? Yeah, exactly. And often guitarists don't think about this in the recording session or when they're writing. So I think that if you have that mindset when you're writing with Guitar Pro as well, then it's not necessarily a bad thing or cheating or anything like that. It's just that when you're playing stuff in Guitar Pro because it sounds cool, but it's not feasibly possible to play it, then that's a different conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, now, actually, I understand it now. I'm not angry about it anymore. I get it. <laughs> it's good, it's good no, that you're at peace. Peace was Guitar Pro. Yeah, because... Yeah, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> I just didn't learn how to use it. It's one of those things, you know, it's just, uh, you know what it's like, you know, when you open a DAW for the first time ever or Guitar Pro for the first time ever, it's like feels overwhelming almost. That's exactly the feeling that I get when I open that program. And that's probably just my own fault. So have you ever tabbed one of your own riffs? Fuck no. Oh, okay. So you've never even written down. I've written it down on a piece of paper. That's what I mean. Have yeah, you? that's easy. Okay, so you have tabbed some of your own riffs. Yeah, but it's way with technology. I'll just film myself or not and then forget how to play and then have to rework it out. But wait, wait a second. <laughs> I, I heard I heard that monuments actually uh, provide official Guitar Pro tabs for their songs. Yes, we did, but I didn't tab it. Ah, okay, that was Lord not it, you. Okay. It, Ollie. It, was, uh, it was Levi Clay, um, who is... Um, just as a shout out to Levi, he is phenomenal. And he gave us the entire tab he of is. one album in probably less than two days without any videos. Oh, cool. You obviously made sure that it was correct. Uh, yes. Yeah. I just, had to, I just had to say that so that people don't hear that you didn't tab it and then are like, well, then it's not correct. No, but like going through it, it was like 99% correct. The only issue that we found was often positional. Oh, yeah. That was it. The The notes were correct. It just wasn't yeah. necessarily yeah, in the, the right, right place. Position. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can't deal with that. Like someone else do it. <laughs> you know, the same philosophy that you have, Al. It's like if someone else can do the job better than you in a shorter space of time, just let them do it. Yes. Except <laughs> whenever I would write riffs, I would record them and put them in Guitar Pro. It just made it way easier that way. I understand. For those reasons. And then also, man, here the, here's the thing. When you're in a two guitar band, and I mean, everybody here 
has played or plays in a band that plays complicated music. So I'm not saying this to, to people who don't understand this already, but for the listeners, when you're playing in a two guitar band that plays fast, complex music, you need to find an efficient way for the other person to learn your shit. Especially if you're writing tough shit, you want to make it easier for them so they don't get frustrated with you. Um, because it's already hard enough for them to learn the parts, right? Like it's already, if you're writing shit that's challenging, you're already, I'm not saying that they're not going to learn it, but uh, you can make it easy for them or you can make it a fucking frustrating experience. Um, and why make it a frustrating experience for someone you work with? So I find that being able to give them the guitar pro makes their life a lot easier. So there's that too. And Everyone listening to this pretty much plays complicated music. So as a service to your fellow bandmates, you know, giving them as much data as possible, I think is always better. Don't you guys think? Absolutely correct. And from yeah. my perspective, being a bass guitarist, uh, having a tab just makes my life four times easier. <laughs> Because when it comes not to composing itself, but creating your bass line or just make, working on arrangements in general, having... A visualization of the others, the other instruments really helps. Because this is not like straight composing. This is just creating something which will perfectly fit, let's say, guitar and drums. And then I, I, I just, I'm very happy that we have such a tool as a guitar pro. So speaking of your bass lines, I want to talk about them a little bit because you're an actual bass player. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure, well... You're laughing, but uh, you know what I mean? Like a lot of bass players in metal are not actual bass players. Um, they just, they play bass guitar, but they don't think like bassists. They just think like low guitarists. And you know what? Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes bass should play this. Very often. Yeah. The, I, yeah. It, it works, but not always. And, and I feel like it shouldn't be the default mode that just, that you just repeat what the guitarist does because that's all you know how to do. Like, so like you said, you think about finding the spot between the drums and the guitar, the thing like, like a real basis. So what I'm wondering is, is this just a thing that you do by feel like, uh, when you're going to deviate from the guitar line, is it just, it, this riff doesn't feel like I should be following it or how does that come into your mind i have a very good answer actually it comes not from the guitar it comes from the drums the, the problem is that spoken like a real bass yeah <laughs> <laughs> an instrument which prevents a bass guitarist to go the other way is the drums and uh, on the first two records of ginger on cloud factory and king of everything the the drum the drums just were too intense to go too much from the guitar, too intense. And that was purely metal style of drumming. Uh, when Vlad joins the band and he has absolutely different style of drumming, yeah, this is the, that was the time when I finally had more space, more space just to go creatively the other directions, uh, uh, sometimes very, very far from guitar, guitar lines. Yeah, and uh, this is this is just this is it. If if uh, the drums are too intense and this pure you know metal style with a lot of blast beats, a lot of uh, double bass, yeah, kick drum, 
then you just you just don't have space for bass guitar. And the only way for you is just to follow the guitar, follow the guitar, follow the guitar. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I feel like that's it's kind of the way it should be done. So basically, <laughs> with the drummer giving you more space, you've been able to be a bass player. Actually, have real bass lines that Absolutely. are independent. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Brown, how does it work in monuments? Because you guys are groovy as fuck, and I know that you record the bass. Sometimes, not always. It depends on the part. It's um, bass. There's so many different accentuations, I guess is probably the right word, or different ways to play that instrument. I mean, that can be said for any of the instruments in the band, but with bass, you have, you know, slap technique, pop technique, um, finger style, thumb, and then a pick. So when it comes to the pick stuff, I tend to play that if it's following the guitar. But if it's something that's more bass-orientated, then it's swanny. And that's because I'm not a bass player by any means. And um, I think the guitar players think the bass is just meant to be there to support what the guitar's doing are completely wrong. I think the bass is uh, probably, in my opinion, the better instrument. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Um, it's more fun. It's more expressive. in. It can be more expressive in the metal genre, so it totally depends on the part. And it's not that I'm playing the bass because I want to. It's just that it works for certain situations for the guitar player to do it because, you know, Everyone plays slightly differently. You can get uh, the the nuances that you don't necessarily hear, like the space between the notes. If it's following the guitar, it just tends to be a little bit tighter with a pick anyway. But yeah, as far as space goes, though, and having it in songs, it just, again, it's exactly what Eugene said about the space. The moment that you have the space there and the bass can sort of wander and do its thing, then it makes it much easier to recreate those parts that fit. Almost like a puzzle. It is a puzzle. Yeah, it's like, you know, when, when you've got a drummer and they're adding in their their ghost notes and then their, you know, heel-toe on the kick drum, it's kind of like that. It's like those little expressions that you can add in on the bass, <laughs> which, uh, again, just makes it way cooler than the guitar in many ways. This is a guitar podcast, and I probably shouldn't say that. But... <laughs> no, man. I, I, people need to respect bass. Yeah. It's yeah. uh that's what yeah, I mean, we are fighting for. Yeah. That's what we're fighting for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's just a low tune guitar, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Man, I can tell you on records I've produced when the bass player sucks and I ended up playing the bass, this is the most fun I ever have in the studio. It's it's getting... just such a fun instrument to actually play. You play it hard. It's uh, <laughs> it's great. So speaking of space and leaving space, I want to talk about how you work your arrangements in order to fit beautiful melodic vocals in there. Because it's a, I realize that you guys will go soft sometimes and sure that that makes sense. But she sings, sings, sings over a lot of the super heavy parts. And, uh, and you guys aren't doing the, you're not doing the commercial thing where you'll just play certain chords to allow the vocalist to sing. She's doing some very intricate melodies over some very intricate music and it works. So what I'm wondering is when you guys are writing those types of riffs, are you thinking to yourself, there's going to be a crazy melodic vocal over this? We need to leave space? No, never. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tati is like, I don't know, we like uh, compose a song, so pre-recorded, like pre-recording maybe with 
like some MIDI drums or an output, like and send it to Tati, and then Tati start work on vocal parts, and then on the studio we, for the first time hear the vocal parts. It wasn't a macro album, and we we're like, whoa, it's like different <laughs> song. It's like what the fuck. We we have absolutely no idea what she's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question to go beyond that because it's one thing that we've never really had much time to do, and that is once the vocals have been added to the song. You mean monuments? Yeah. So okay. do you guys also go over the song again once you have vocals? Like, do you think about what you could, like, say, accentuate on, like, the symbols or something to follow the vocal? Have you ever done that or anything like that? Never. <laughs> Interesting. Never. Okay, cool. I'm glad we're not the only one. <laughs> for the re- first of all, for the reason because for a couple of reasons, yeah, we don't have. Well, it was already recorded, yeah. Yeah, no time. And secondly, yeah. uh, just apart from the problem that there is no time, we just never felt like we needed to do that because Tatiana never. She always completed a song, completed and never turned it the way we wouldn't like it. With her vocals, yeah. every single song sounded only better. And there is no reason to work. What a great situation. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah, we're yeah. happy about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing because uh, vocals, I do believe vocals make or break a band, regardless of the style of music. Even in the heaviest music, the vocals make it or break it. And uh, it's such an important, crucial piece. And just to have the confidence in your vocalist that vocalist is going to do what the vocalist does and it's going to be better. And you just know that (laughs) ahead of time. That's great. And the fact that it actually is better, that's even greater. It is. She proved it over the years. There is is no more reason to, you know, worry about this anymore. Yeah, from the first records, we're like, oh, I I don't know how she... Dude, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody understands how she does it. Yeah. Yeah. Very often we leave the first take. She go- goes to this uh, control room, uh, stands in front of the mic, starts singing, and it's actually improvisation in many, in many times. Yeah. And we can leave the first take. Ask Max about this. He he will he'll confirm. Yeah. He he told me that, that. We, we we just leave the first yeah. take. How she does it, I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not very that's not a very normal thing even among really good vocalists. That's not it's not normal that the majority of takes are improvised first takes. So okay, so you guys literally have heard nothing before? Yeah. Nothing. You have zero idea zero. what's going <laughs> yeah. on. She goes in the booth and she belts something out and boom, it's perfect. Next pretty much <laughs> I sometimes I sometimes uh, go through the lyrics before she goes to the studio but I I, I I never had a chance to listen to what how how she's gonna sing this and that yeah only through the text but that's it interesting that seems really stressful but that's because of who I am <laughs> well all right hold on Brown I I know why that's stressful for you yeah it's understandably <laughs> stressful for you. I feel like probably if you were in their situation, it wouldn't be so stressful. No, not to. I, I'm not talking about your current situation, by the way. I'm just saying in the past, like if you had this situation where everything was just 
done perfectly quickly. Oh, it, it, don't get me wrong, it was good, but still doesn't de-stress the situation for me. <laughs> I can't even put a word on it, what it is. But yeah, I mean, the, the amanuensis, we didn't hear the vocals until you'd done them. So yeah. AL recorded the vocals on the on the second record, uh, the amanuensis, and we hadn't heard any of them until they were sent. Yeah, and it took six weeks. And it, yeah, it took that long too. Took six weeks to record all those vocals. So the, to me, the idea of a vocalist just walking in and boom, it's great the first time. Fuck yeah. That's great. I hope Tatiana will not watch the podcast because next time she'll ask us for six weeks for the vocals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> oh, we, we didn't dance. give him six weeks. We didn't give him that. No, yeah, that. they didn't book six weeks. <laughs> they booked two weeks, right? Whoa. Uh, it might have been three or four weeks, but it was definitely not six. Yeah, it just took forever because of the way that this vocalist worked. But I will say... The vocals are great, so we. I think we all here and we all in Ginger really. Uh, Monuments is actually one of the bands which we listen quite a lot on tour. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I apologize about that, but thank you. <laughs> but yeah, like so. So, how long do you give Tatty in the studio? So you've not heard a final version. You've not heard any version. And then she'll record a whole album in what, like a week? No, it was done like a song, one song maybe, like one session, then a break, one day break, then another song. We work like this. It was eight songs around two weeks or something like that. Shorter, okay. a week and a half. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. she sometimes she did two songs in a day. Sometimes. Yeah, but that's the, crazy. The, the idea is that she records, she has a session, then a day off, then another session, then a day off, and so on. For like break for a vocal. Maintenance of voice. I think that's a great way to do it. Um, one of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion, in metal production is waiting until the very end to do the vocals or just doing it all in like two days or three days. Like vocalists need rest. Absolutely. So I think that's smart. Let her do her thing, recover, and then be 100% Fresh. and do her thing again. Yeah. So everything was already totally recorded, and then it's vocal time. Yeah. And she'll do a session 48 hours later, do another session. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. That that makes uh, perfect sense. So um, you were saying that, uh, you know, your drummer has written seven songs. Have you guys been writing overall throughout this lockdown period? Yeah, I have some ideas on my computer, and but it's not completely songs. I I, I made only one. Only one. <laughs> one, one. One song, yeah. So just out of curiosity, what do you use at home that's uh, different than what you use live? Like what's a, when you're writing rig, what does that consist of? Or your practice rig? I don't know, it's Mac, Mac Pro. Uh, and audio interface, and I use Helix now for like for pre-recording. And that's it. Awesome! It's very good. Yeah, and that's it. It's my like, traveling rig, and I use like small monitors, IKEA multimedia, iLoud for like monitoring and stuff, and that's it. Cool, awesome. And do you use the Helix Live? Uh, no. You don't use the Helix Live. You 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 play it live. 
Ah, live. Like, live I, on stage. Well, on stage. Oh, oh. And now I use Helix like on stage. Uh, I use it for clean sounds and for for impulse responses and also uh, sounds from my head from preamp go into the Helix, then goes in from the so the impulse responses left and right to PA straight from the Helix and clean sound goes from emulation of clean amp. But it's like different uh, snapshots and that's it. But I also use mic with the cap. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's actually exactly how I do it as well. Yeah. You do that too, Brown? Yeah, I use the, the Helix for clean sounds and then an actual amp for the dirty sounds. Yeah. So are, are you are you basically using like a load box, like a head into a load box and then into the Helix for the IRs and then out to the PA? How complicated do you go? Not, not complicated at all. Uh, I just use Helix for my whole chain. I, I split my, my signal. I have uh, a clean signal and uh, I have a dirty signal, which is actually just a guitar amp uh, and uh, an impulse response. And I also have, uh, I, I just, I have a, a copy of my clean signal, which is which I use as uh, a monitor signal to my in-ears. So, and uh, uh, this is basically it, just the helix. Uh, I, of course, can use some backline, you know, just to have some pressure on stage. But it doesn't really influence the sound in the mix and uh, the sound in the PA. So everything comes out of Helix. And uh, at home, uh, I just have another Helix, same chain. At some point, I, you know, started following uh, a piece of advice by almighty Billy Sheehan. And he said that Mm -hmm. you better just cut down all the things which could be different and uh, just minimize all, all those thing, things which can be different when you play. Use the same guitar, the same amp, the same everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is what I try to do. I just use the same thing everywhere. At home, on stage, in the studio, because uh, in the studio I play through my chain uh, for monitoring. Of course, I record just a DI signal most of the time, but I use Helix in my chain just to monitor what I'm playing. Yeah. I I feel like uh, uh, when the Kemper came out in 2013 and it started spreading around to guitar players, that was kind of the first time that it became possible to take... I mean, you could use like a pod before that, but like if you had like really, really good amp tone or whatever. This is the first time that you could take the exact tone from the studio and like really, really take it everywhere. And now that's just uh, the way things are done. Why would you not take the tone that you're used to and the rig that you're used to if it's that easy to do? Absolutely. In my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a big thing. I mean, the Helix itself, how 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 big it is. This, this size... So it, it is not really complicated in any way just to, to use it everywhere, at home, on stage, everywhere, yeah. In your live rig, so you're basically using like a, like a real head and then that goes yeah. into a load box, load box into the Helix. I mean, not, not load box into no, the Helix. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, got it. And the IR goes to the PA. Yeah, and also we might uh, uh, Winter 30. 
Solution. Oh yeah, sick. Yeah, you're using yeah. the coffee cabs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome, great cabs. There's yeah. one over there. Great cabs, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of videos. Yeah, just uh, the bottom over here. You probably channel. can't quite see <laughs> it. Sounds great. Um, might see the coffee logo from that, from that. But yeah, really good cabs. Yeah, wonderful cabs. Yeah, and our sound engineer mixed all these signals, three signals. So you guys basically kind of have the same setup wherever you're going, which is super efficient because it really allows you to hone in how you do things. Because as you know, when you play with different types of tones, it affects the way that you play. So having the same thing everywhere uh, probably makes you guys that much tighter of a band because there's less variables to think about. And so then with the idea of recording a live record, do you think that that makes it easier to approach that idea when you know that what you're going to be using is the same every single night? There's less to worry about, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, just, yeah, you know, to be precise on this, the idea of having one and the same thing every night at home, everywhere, it is not only about me and Roman using helixes. It is uh, everything we have on stage. While on tour, we bring our set of mics, our mixing console, our just everything. It, wherever we go and it is possible to bring our own backline, we'll bring our backline. So basically all around Europe will most possibly come by a van or by a mini uh, nightliner and bring our own backline. We will not have a rented stuff. Whenever we go somewhere overseas, Hopefully now in, in the States, we can get, we just have our own stuff there too. The drums, Vlad has his drum ki kit there. We bring our guitars, we have our helixes, and it's exactly the same set which we have uh, in Europe, just 100%. So, and once we go on stage, we don't need much time because it's our mixing console. The, the, we have already something pre-set. Uh, pre we have a preset for, for each state, a stage. So it, it makes everything way easier and more efficient. And of course, when you go on stage somewhere in Melbourne, uh, in Australia, first time there, and uh, we actually decided to do this live album during the sound check. We were ready for that because we had our own stuff with us. Wait, so just right then and there, you're doing a sound check and you just say, fuck it, let's make a live album tonight. Exactly. Like exactly. Awesome. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because somebody just told us that there would be a guy who would record a video. And we were just talking, Roman, me and Vlad to each other. And we decided, why, why don't we just uh, record our audio? This is how it was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've done, a, we've done the same thing, but I haven't done anything with the audio yet. <laughs> <laughs> what, what happened? What happened with you, Brown? Like, what, one day you just did it? Yeah, well, basically we... Um, not the last London show, the London show before was completely filmed. And it's easy enough to record the audio when you have everything connected to your in-ear mixer. So we use one of those Presonus 32-channel, two-unit rack things. Most people are probably familiar with the Behringer X32. Yeah. And there's a couple of other, other ones as well. And then if your front of house guy also has a desk, then he can also record from there as well, a complete multi-track recording. And that's what we did. And it's like, it's one of those things that um, I feel like that every band, especially, well, now, if they'd filmed or recorded every single one of their shows before lockdown, they'd have kind of like an infinite 
amount of promotional stuff to put out now <laughs> you know exactly i think i th- i think we've got like 25 sets recorded from our inner mixer but imagine if you just went around with cameras as well you could literally just film every single live show you ever did It'd be amazing for marketing purposes it is absolutely amazing yeah especially like you said during the lockdown when we imagine how happy we were two weeks after melbourne show when everything just got cancelled and we we had the whole gig on video and on audio so and in, in good quality in good quality of course it was definitely a win situation exactly the only uh the only thing that i um think that might you know you might need to plan in like what I would have thought anyway, it's just like some room mics. So it actually picks up the crowd a little bit more. But unfortunately, we use all 32 channels on our desk and it's not necessarily needed, but you know, just for that extra bit of ambiance of the crowd and stuff. But the one that we did that on, <laughs> it crashed. <laughs> I perfectly understand what you mean. Yeah, but this time we were lucky to have this ambient sound just from the cameras. Oh yeah, good point. Exactly, yeah. Never even thought about that. That's actually a good idea. Yeah, just even just recording the audio from the cameras. Smart. Didn't even think about that. Cool. <laughs> and also uh, about the about the, uh, using the same rig every night. It helps sound engineer a lot because like he know how to work with this exactly cab, this exactly drums. You know how to. Yeah. He also has preset and then like little bit edited for edit for PA local PA and that's it. Yeah. It's actually amazing how much quicker sound check is because then they're literally just tuning the PA and everything's ready. Yeah, yeah. You don't technically even need to sound check because they're just like, well, I'm I'm ready, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I love living in the future. <laughs> in my opinion, it fits perfectly uh, those, you know, festivals where you're allowed to do this silent line check. Yeah. And uh, yeah, your sound engineer needs to be a god level in order to, you know, edit everything and and adapt everything to the local PA within half of the first song. But again, when it is your mixing console, again, your whole rig, which you just take with you and bring on stage, it is, I think it's the most efficient way to do it. I think so too. And, you know, it's so easy now with digital consoles, if you've got your in front of house console, it's just a Cat5 cable. It's one cable. But we go the other way. We bring uh, our Yamaha TF rack console, put it right on stage, and our sound engineer operates it with a tablet in the crowd. He is very often right right near the mosh pit with his tablet. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a bunch of uh, guys do that, actually. That, that's great, because uh, mixing it for what it actually sounds like to the crowd is huge. It makes such a huge difference. It, it, this is a mistake a lot of people do. They, they, they sit at that FOH how we call this FOH? How, it's not a house. Position. Of, position. position. Yeah, position. Yeah. Yes. Front of house. Yeah, front of house. But it is usually covered with a roof. It, it is definitely there. You do not hear what the people hear just ten meters in front of them. So it it is always different. And uh, being able to stand right there where the people are, I think it is it is really important. So, out of curiosity, how long did it take? before you guys were able to travel with your own console, have the same rig every night. Basically, you know, the way you guys are doing it now is, in my opinion, fucking awesome. But I'm sure that's not how it started. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How long did it take? When did we start 
to bring our own mixing console, Roman. Do you remember? 2015? 16. Oh, 16. 16. 16. 16. Yeah, 16. When Vlad came. Yeah, Vlad, Vlad joined us, and this was the time when we just decided to, you know, make some changes and bought our first mixing console. It was actually Behringer, if I'm not mistaken. X32, right? Yeah, yeah, we yes. had that yeah, uh, shit <laughs> for some time. I think so, yeah. Before that, we were traveling just, you know, just the back line, <laughs> and that's it. No monitoring, nothing. We just went on stage and did punk rock, I think. <laughs> but now, looking back and, you know... But it was fun, it was fun. It was fun, but it, and <laughs> it didn't sound that horrible. <laughs> it sounded well. It sounded good. How long did it take before... Uh, people outside the Ukraine started to notice. But I'll just say that I first heard of you guys in 2015. I saw the video with the dogs. I'm, I'm bad with song names, but you so you know which one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. The one with the dog. And I was like, hmm, this band's pretty cool. And I just paid attention. I mean, you guys know your own career. So like it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. But I imagine that things had to be going for quite a while, quite a bit of struggle to get to the point where even I heard of you guys. So I'm just wondering, like, even like, when did just people in ge your geographical area outside of Ukraine start to notice you? Hard to say. You know, to be honest with you, we first got this attention from outside of Ukraine. And only later on... That makes sense. Yeah, we, we got some recognition here in Ukraine. But even now, comparing recognition outside of Ukraine and in Ukraine, it's just incomparable. We are way more... We have a bigger status outside than in our own country. It seems to work like that a lot for people. Well, then it's, it's natural because in Ukraine, the whole extreme music scene is just not... De well developed. It's very small and amateur. Yeah, but we started like the, when was the band the band founded? Roman two thousand eight nine. I think nine. If, if we count from Max records. Yeah, so it's like eleven eight, years eight. ago. Eight, twelve years, okay. twelve years ago now. But we first went on tour, like a real tour, not a single show somewhere, but a tour only in two thousand thirteen. But the good side is that since that first tour. We were constantly on the road. We were just playing everywhere, no matter what, for nothing, for no money, yeah, just for gas money. We went everywhere. And after seven years, here we are now. I tried to calculate, I tried to count how many shows we played since 2013, and it is over 600. I have gotten the vibe that you guys are a very ambitious group of people that you guys want the band to do as well as possible and uh, you work your fucking asses off to do that. And I've always heard that you guys uh, worked your asses off and nobody works their asses off in a band unless they have big ambitions because it's fucking hard. So what I'm wondering is before you got that tour and when things were at their most, uh, I'd say, hopeless, like say before 2013, like, did you guys still have the same ambitions? Like this band's going to be big. We're going to, this, this is for real, no matter how long it takes, like this thing's going to be real. <laughs> well, uh, man, we, we never did it because of ambitions. The problem we, okay. Again, just being very honest and open, 
We just did it because of fun. We went to play our first, that very tour in March 2013, because we never were abroad before. And we went to play in Romania <laughs> and in Moldova. Just, we didn't make any money. And it, it, I, I'm sure it didn't promote us that much. We just wanted to go and have fun, to party, to play on stage, you know, just to enjoy it. It was like, you know, a tourist trip and at the same time some some shows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but but dude, I know that a lot of people do it because it's fun, but after one year, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of people who quit after, you know, their band will get signed or they'll start touring and after one year, it's not as much fun anymore and then they'll quit. I pers I, I perfectly understand what you mean, but with us it was a bit different because in a year the war started mm -hmm. uh, in the place we, we come from and we had to move out and we didn't have anything. We didn't have uh, a place to stay. We didn't have jobs and we just didn't have anything else to do. We only played because that was the only source of just some income, so some money. And once you're on tour, you don't need to play for a place. You are on tour and uh, you are given some food. You're yeah. given some place to stay. And this is what we did. We, it was a very obvious and very easy choice to do. When you have nothing, it's very easy to leave everything and go somewhere. This is, this is how it happened. And after three, four years, of course, we just understood that, yes, let's say in 2016, we were signed with Napalm Records. And this is where I personally understood that, damn, it works. We, we have some attention. There is some hype going on. So we reached something. And yeah, uh, with understanding that something changed, but then it, it, it is, it is, it was anyway having fun because we, more opportunities opened before us. I just wanted to go to those festivals and play, not to promote the band, but just to enjoy the festival or to go <laughs> on tour. And to be able to do it for real. Yes. Yeah. Th that was like a childhood dream. And then we went to play in the States first time in 2018 with Cradle of Fills. And the whole idea is just going to the United States with Cradle of Fills. It, it was exciting. And that was the main reason why we agreed to do that because we didn't make much money. We just didn't make any money on that, honestly. Just something to be like able to survive. Zero, or like zero, yeah. We, just something to be able to survive and that's it. Yeah, and that, that, that was what I was driving at. So the main and the primary reason behind all of that wasn't just the ambition and the, the desire to push this band as far as we can. No, we were first, first of all, enjoying it. And for you just, it's very hard to understand my perspective because look, I am and Roman as we are people from a province in Ukraine, Eastern European country, we never even dreamt of being able to go to the United States or South Africa or Australia. <laughs> yeah. We never thought it's impossible. It's impossible. We never thought this would happen. It's amazing that it did. But by the way, let me just clarify one thing. I never thought that you didn't do it because you love it, because I think that it, nobody will suffer through touring <laughs> long term unless they love it. So to me, ambition for wanting to push things and then also loving what you do and the fun are, they're two separate things. But if you don't have that fun aspect to it, 
and loving it and doing it for the right artistic reasons, there's no way to keep it going, in my opinion. Like people eventually leave if they don't have that. So in my mind, I already assumed that uh, that you guys are in it for the love of the music. But there's also a lot of bands that are in it for the love of the music who... Um, who don't work as hard and they don't push as hard. But I understand what you're saying is that there was a, in some ways it was your survival mechanism, like a, v- a very real survival mechanism to get you out of a very, very bad situation. So why not, why not go for it super hard? Exactly. Exactly. And once you get used to this, once you get used to this, you just, you, you'd start accepting this as uh, something very natural. It just, it is the way it is, and you don't know how. You just don't even know that it can be different. This is your life, yeah. and you just live your life the way you want. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking about what you guys were saying about how you never imagined the sorts of things that you're doing now. All right, so you, you say you never imagined it, um, and basically the success is beyond, in some ways, beyond your wildest dreams, but. At the same time, how do you keep yourself grounded in it so that you don't get lost thinking about, oh, wow, this is so cool. Now we've really made it or anything like that. Because I feel like sometimes thinking about that kind of stuff too much distracts people from doing the work. So how do you keep your mind level and grounded on earth? Roman, how do you keep your mind level? Because you you keep it silent for too long. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, bro. You speak too well. I don't know. I'm you. <laughs> my my really English well. is not so good to speak like you. So no, you're doing you know. great, dude. Man, uh, you know. No, Eugene, your English is great. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. That's why I do all this press. Yeah, but this one I enjoy. Yeah, it's cool to talk to you guys. <laughs> wish I I would Likewise. never. Yeah, wish I would never be able to speak about most of the press we we do these days. <laughs> you know, actually. There are a few reasons and a few ways for us to keep, like you said, down to earth. We never had, um, you know, you need time. You need to stop in order to understand where you are now. Once you run all, all the way, and this is what we have been doing all these years. We were running, 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 running somewhere. Yeah, and enjoying it, of course. But uh, only after this quarantine started, we, I personally was able to look back and realize what sort of a way we, we've done all over the years. But like I said, in our case, everything comes from, you know, this love for music. And uh, being on quarantine for a few months, I just started feeling very depressed because me and Tatiana, we were in Los Angeles and the guys went back to Ukraine and uh, we were separated. And uh, I, I started feeling like I, I am out of the band because we, we couldn't rehearse together. We, of course, you know, kept in touch, but it's not the same. It's not playing music together. And uh, I only felt all right after I came back to Ukraine and we had the first rehearsal. And uh, love for music stands behind everything that is happening in this in this band we just don't have time you know to turn our noses up and and become arrogant and things like that and you know just get this star 
thick, sickness or disease, how you call this. We just didn't have time for this and we don't have time for this now because we are constantly doing something music-wise. We are writing new songs, we are making new music videos because we really enjoy it and we cannot imagine ourselves without this. And we just don't have time for all this bullshit. And, and it is bullshit. It is bullshit. Once yeah. you're very busy, you, you yeah. won't be doing this bullshit because you're busy with your work. With things you love. Yeah. I'm glad that you called it bullshit because I feel like some musicians succumb to it. Like they start to believe, they start to believe that they, that they're like a, like a God almost. Um, And it kind of, I mean, not necessarily God, but their head gets overinflated. Their sense of themselves gets overinflated. And in some ways it distracts them from worrying about what really matters which is the music, to get too too focused on it. I, I feel like when you spend too much time worrying about what other people think, whether it's good reviews or bad reviews or whatever, you take too much of that in, you're going to start believing it. So if, uh, if you take in too many bad reviews, it can make a person start to feel insecure. If you take in too much of the praise and take it too seriously, that can also get a person kind of crazy. Neither of them are good. I think just keeping your eye on Balance. what you're doing it for. Yeah. what you, Why you're doing it in the first place. I think that that's the, uh, the healthiest way to approach it. Brown, don't you think? I think so. Yeah, for sure. Get, getting an ego, there's just no space for it. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're in like someone like Metallica, then I mean, I'm sure you've earned it. But even then, you need a little bit of an ego. I think that that I think confidence. confidence, I think confidence is often mistaken for ego. There's a different, there's a big difference between confidence and ego, though, in my opinion. Well, it's on a, I think it's on a spectrum. I disagree. Because uh, I think that you need to have enough, you need to believe in your own stuff enough think that it's important enough to to actually put it out there in the world. Like if you don't have enough of that, you're not going to put it in front of other people. Put yourself in front of other people and take the risk of possibly being rejected by the world, rejected by your friends, or having your ideas rejected. Now, if you have too much ego overconfidence into arrogance, uh, then you won't listen to what other people say uh, and you won't be, it will be impossible to work with you and you'll have very, you'll basically have a very, very hard time in the world or create a very hard time for other people. And it won't be good for your music in the end because uh, you'll start believing that you're a lot better than you actually are. But I think you need to have just enough, just enough, like the perfect amount, like the Goldilocks zone of ego uh, to where... (laughs) You do feel confident. And I do think it's on a spectrum. I think some people some people have too much, some people have too little, and some people have just enough, basically. You know what? This, uh, the key word is enough. And this is actually what we, what we miss a lot in the modern world. Not only talking about music, but talking about all the, all the things happening around these days. People literally have forgotten the concept of enough and they, they either need more and more and more and just cannot really satisfy their, uh, you know, enormous ambitions or greed or whatever. Or, or there, there is another type of people who, who are not even craving for anything. <laughs> they are so much, yeah. so much satisfied with what they have, even though it is not enough. 
So and the, this keeping the balance with what you were talking about, this is what what we really miss. Yeah. Well, so the thing with being satisfied with not enough, in my opinion, the reason I think people do that is because they don't have enough ego or enough confidence. So they tell themselves, this is not possible for me because I'm not good enough. I should just be okay with, with something less than I'm capable of. And so they accept a, a lesser outcome in their life, which I don't think makes them happy in the end. At all. So what's enough for you? Be happy. <laughs> for me, <laughs> enough is... Happiness. Yeah, is happiness. Once I'm happy, that's enough. Uh, how do you know when that is? Oh, you feel definitely, you can feel that you are happy. It, it, is, it, is, it is impossible maybe to explain in words, but once you're happy, you feel it. It's just very important to stay honest with yourself. Yeah, not to lie to yourself, but yeah, this is the key thing. If you do not lie yourself and you, you definitely know and feel you're, you're happy, then you're happy. And this is where enough is enough. If I'm happy with this sound, let's say, making an album, I will, not, I will never work more of it because I never try to do things, to make things better than they are, if they are okay. Now, if they are good, I, I, my, my, my opinion is that it is just, it doesn't make sense to work on good things because better is... Subjective almost, isn't it? Yeah, it, better is always an enemy of good. Yeah. If you know what I mean. This is, yeah, this is just my, my approach. You know, what's interesting about what you just said is uh, when you know something is enough, like good enough. Well, okay, so there's a way that, uh, there's a way you can look at it as, which I don't think this is what you mean. Um, some people uh, will say, okay, that's good enough to just get by. I don't think that's what you mean. I think what you mean is when you find the right tone, the end, you found the right tone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, because I'm clarifying because I think some people, like for instance, studio engineers, they'll be mixing something and it sounds awesome, but then they won't know that they hit that moment and then they'll just keep going until they fucking ruin it. Yeah. It's learning when to abandon it, isn't it? Yeah. You have to know when, when you achieved it. Yep. I think that a lot of us struggle with that moment. It's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Especially when you write a song in five hours. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's your brain play, playing tricks on you in every situation of that. You know, the happiness thing. It's like when, you know, it's like when you get that feeling, that's when you should stop. You see, the problem is that our mind just plays so many tricks on us. It, it, getting back to that, to getting back to that point that you, you remember just a few minutes ago we were talking about writing songs and that we uh, just unintentionally start to value things which we put more efforts in more. So for us, if we put more efforts into something, it is more valuable. Yeah. Yeah, and we we just miss a lot of other factors. We miss that something may come out of pure inspiration and come yeah. effortlessly, but it is a masterpiece. So this is just a mind playing tricks. So many variations. It's a mind playing tricks, but it's a very real phenomenon. Uh, I used to work with this mixer who, um, he, uh, he's very fast. So like he could mix a song in 45 minutes and it would sound amazing. But uh, whenever we would be working on an album and he would mix something in 45 minutes, he would wait a week to send it to the band. 
because he's gotten fired before he mixed their song in 45 minutes, sent it back. He got fired because they thought that he was fucking around or being lazy. (laughs) So what he would do is mix it in the amount of time it took him to mix, send it a week later. So they thought that he was working in it a week and then they would love it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I will ask Max, Max, I will ask Max about (laughs) how Max works. (laughs) A lot of people mix pretty fast, but it's exactly what we were talking about because the band didn't, they didn't accept that this mix could be awesome in 45 minutes because it's not <laughs> long enough, even though it is the mix sounded awesome in 45 minutes. Some people are just, are just that fast. So I know you guys have to go. I know you told me 90 minutes. Um, I'm sure we could keep talking Forever. for hours. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we should yeah. do this again sometime. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Big pleasure for us. Yeah, big pleasure for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll 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 work on Roman's English for the next time. I'll I'll, I'll help him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just watch, yeah, just watch some movies, man. Yeah. Just, yeah. that's what I, everyone does, isn't it? Watch movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> next year we'll we'll we will be releasing our next record, and maybe before that, it will be a good idea to talk again. Yeah, would love to. Um, Whenever, man. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. We'll try and come to the conclusion of happiness. Happiness, yeah. <laughs> let's, all, let's leave it open for now, but yeah, you yeah. will have some time to think over it, yeah. Yeah, we'll see if we any of us achieved it by that point in time. <laughs> I am happy I am happy now. I am. Oh, okay. Maybe next time you'll tell me the secret. Exactly. I want yeah. the secret. I will, uh, <laughs> I will try to build up my own theory of happiness. Awesome. Yeah. I want to hear about that next time for sure. Man, I think that their experience of uh, coming out of a war-torn country is something that a lot of people can't relate to. But I bet you that that adds an urgency. I know they said they do it for the love, and I do believe that wholeheartedly. I think that that's genuine. But I believe also that life or death adds an urgency to everything. It has to. It's got to, hasn't it? I mean, I can't even fathom being in that situation. I mean, I'm sure you remember the news when we saw the the center square of uh, the Ukrainian capital was blown to bits. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but I remember 2013, I believe. Was it that long ago? Damn. 13 or 14, yeah. Yeah, I can't even fathom what that's like. I mean, I don't think many people have been in that situation. No. That we know of anyway. No, and uh, there's not a huge amount of awesome bands to come out of Eastern Europe in the first place. I mean, there's some, right? Like uh, a behemoth and stuff, and there's some, but you don't hear about it very often. And what's interesting in this situation is their producer too, Max Morton. Yep. He's great. These guys are really good musicians too. Uh, it's just not a very, you don't hear about it very often, but I think that they're they're united by this singular purpose. I mean, obviously the artistic purpose, but also survival. Yeah. And I also think that with the, you know, the Eastern European countries, it totally comes down to maybe even the language that is being, you know, lyrically done. Um, like even if you think about something like Rammstein, even though they're singing in German, how often do you see any other act that sings in a different language being as big in 
the more popular styles of music. It doesn't happen very often. Now, the the Rammstein thing is a freak occurrence. Having yeah. a hit in German in the U.S. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think Rammstein were probably bigger in Europe way before they were the size that they are in the U.S. Oh yeah, but still, like normally, a German speaking a band that sings in German that's big in Germany, and they are German to the hilt. Like you can't imagine that getting big in the U.S. Yeah, but to become like a pop hit, what? Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's a very unique situation, isn't it? I mean, very technically, unique. we haven't really seen anything like that other than in opera when they sing in the the different languages. But even then, that's still not popular. <laughs> that's opera. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, that's a different breed. But yeah, I mean, you just don't. It's just one of those things, and I think that's probably why maybe some of these bands in the Eastern European countries, or even you know. You could even say in Spain or Italy, if they sing in their native language, then it generally isn't going to get as big in the Western world as potentially it could do. Ginger is in English, though. It is. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. is in English. I got to say, though, some of my favorite Dimu Borgir songs are the ones in Norwegian <laughs> because I don't understand what they're saying. And so it just, it sounds evil. Like, it yes. sounds evil. I have no idea what they're saying. And so I can I can feel it a lot better, I guess, because I'm not distracted by the words. Exactly. And also goes the same for the new Opeth record. They released two versions of it, one in English and one in Swedish. Yeah, I like the Swedish version better. <laughs> so I had an Instagram live with Freddie and he was saying that the translation between Swedish and English wasn't absolute, which is why they decided to do it in the two different languages. And that makes a lot of sense. But then if you're Opeth already, then you can get away with stuff like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, if if they weren't Opeth already, I mean, Opeth is a band that I feel like could put out a record of just noise and someone would love it. Yeah. If another progressive band that didn't have their stature and track record put out a foreign language record, I don't know if it would go over. But honestly, man, like I said, I like the Swedish version better. I prefer the Dima Borgir songs in Norwegian and also in opera or in choral music. One of the things I can't stand is when you get a choir director who translates the German or Italian text into English. Uh, I've heard that done, like or the Brahms Requiem. There was this uh, choral director in Atlanta who translated it into English. And he also translated a Verdi Requiem into English. And it was like, God, you are cheapening the shit out of this. <laughs> it's because those languages have a certain uh, almost je ne sais quoi about them, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. part, that's part of the art. It's not meant to be in English. Yeah. It's almost like someone translating all your guitar parts from Darth. Into what? <laughs> onto a like uh, out of tune oboe. <laughs> that, could, that could be interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't yeah, know you, you I mean, could play chords on the elbow. Oh, I mean, anything's possible if you think think big enough, mate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, thinking big, have a have a chordal elbow. <laughs> well, that would just be three people. Well, okay. How? What about parts where I would do seventeen note chords? There's no such thing as a seventeen note chord. Yeah, there is on a guitar. Oh well, I mean, you don't play it all at the same time. 
All right. Yeah. Okay. Then. See, now we're just getting into particulars. <laughs> yeah. Edge cases. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Why would? Why on earth would you translate something so amazing into a language that it was not meant to be expressed in? I think that this choir director was doing it for the American audiences so that they could understand it or something. But see, I guess that I just have a fundamental different philosophy on music. Uh, I believe that the music itself is the universal language, not yeah. the words. That's why you could have gone on tour in places where the language is certainly a barrier and people still fucking love it yeah. because they're connecting with what music actually is. Honestly, that's why I think it's called the universal language. And so I've always thought that the words in music, even though I just finished a podcast saying that the vocals make or break an album, I think the words themselves are secondary to how the music or the vocals even feel. I think it almost also depends on the final sort of point of the music. So... Like, you know, when you listen to something like, you know, opera, chordal, Brahms, whatever, it always takes me to that point in the in the film Shawshank Redemption. Do you know that bit where he uh, he puts the vinyl on and plays it throughout the never whole prison? It. What? Sorry. You've never... Oh, my God. Really? And I'm not interested. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Because it's a prison movie from the 90s. Dude, dude, please watch it. Please, for the love of God, watch it. I like prison movies like Shot Collar. Dude, please watch that movie. No, please. I don't know. I'll think about <laughs> but it. But anyway, this part, he plays the, um, this vinyl throughout the whole prison, and it is actually female vocal. And uh, Morgan Freeman, who's one of the actors in it, says he had no idea what this woman was talking about, but it was just so beautiful. And I think that that is what you mean when you say the universal music language because ultimately some of us yeah we want to understand the lyrics but if it's so beautiful then it doesn't really matter correct that's exactly it or if it's not necessarily it doesn't just have to be beautiful like uh it just has to make you feel something exactly if it's powerful enough or whatever to make you feel something what the words actually are doesn't even matter no and that's why lots of people even like instrumental music because the words don't generally matter for a lot of music. Yeah, I, I agree. There's obviously certain artists where it's not like it bothers me that it's in English or anything. <laughs> I'm just used to the songs the way they are. and it, it makes sense. It might even be weird in another language. But I don't, I personally don't believe that uh, that language at the end of the day, should be a barrier from people enjoying music. No, but again, I guess it just comes down to the final point. Yeah, and the final point and who the audience is. And who the audience is, yeah, that was exactly my second point. Like some people like to know the lyrics so they can sing along. But then again, you can sing along with non-English lyrics as well. You just have to learn. Yeah, people sung along with Du Hast just fine. Exactly. Or they sing along to, you know, some of their favorite, uh, I mean, Pavarotti or something like that, you can sing along to it. And you, there's loads of people that could sing along to it now without have listened to it in, you know, over 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Just think music hits, uh, hits some, another, something other than what words hit. I want to talk a little bit more about their writing. Like how often have you written a song and 
five hours? Maybe twice. Were they good ones? One is Vanta on the Phrenesis. And I wrote it in one session. The session was six hours. And that was, I mean, obviously I made very minute changes at that point, but the structure was done. All the riffs were there. And it doesn't happen often. Did it just pour out of you? Yeah. Just one day, it just came. Those days are amazing. They don't happen enough. But that day was a very good day. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that people should wait around for those days, but it's almost like the more you write, the more often they'll happen, in my experience at least. Yes, but also sometimes it does happen for me, but I need to have almost an idea of what's going to happen. Like it might not be finished. I might have like, you know, you know, I write in motifs like three note patterns and stuff like that. And I might have two or three that I come and sit down with and then it all pours out at that point. So I kind of have like, you know, what I want to say, it just might not be fully set in stone. Then I find it much easier to write like that. But then again, yeah, sometimes like with Vanta, I won't have anything. I'll sit down and it'll just pour out of me. But I've never been able to work out a formula as to why it happens. That's the only thing that's missing for me. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is just that I need to write more music. But I've never really been able to work out what causes it. So I have a basic idea on how to make it happen. It's not foolproof. You know, this is not like science where you get the same result every time if you conduct the experiment. What I've come to the conclusion of is that there's a few things. Number one is frequency of how often you're right. So creativity being a finite resource that needs to be recharged and replenished um, and that waxes and wanes, like you need to take that into consideration. But if you only write when you're inspired, you're going to be missing out on lots of times to write when your creativity is charged up. That's number one. So first of all, you're throwing away lots of opportunities. So the more often you write, the more, the higher are the chances that you're going to be writing during that exact right state of mind. Now, So, okay, so that number one is frequency. You're just upping the odds. Um, Number two, by writing more often, you're more warmed up. So obviously, the more often you write, the quicker you become at translating an idea from your head to the guitar or recording. Uh, At least I've noticed that if I haven't written in a while, sometimes i got to get the cobwebs out. But if I'm writing often, there's no cobwebs. So... Okay, so number one, I increase the chances of the right mood happening. Number two, uh, I'm more efficient with my ideas. So if the right mood does happen, I don't get in my own way. And then on top of that, what I do is I try to learn new things because I have this idea that anything I'm learning, like really learning, is going to come out in some way, shape, or form. Typically, the way that it happens for me is I'll learn something cool, new, yep. and then forget about it. And then like a week later, I'll write something that incorporates it, which is on a whole new level. But because I've been writing a lot, I'll more likely be in that good mood. Yeah. And also, since I've been writing a lot, I'm fast at it. And then, so you combine those two things with this 
new stimulus for ideas, which is this new thing I learned. And that's how I have gotten myself to do that. That works a lot of the time. Yeah. But it requires the discipline to write all the time and to learn new things and to write even when you're not feeling like writing. I understand. Yeah. I feel like it also cycles through your bad ideas. Yes. I would agree with that. Yeah. So basically for me, in order to actually write something, it involves a lot of what you're saying, but I think I'm slightly different in that I don't necessarily hear what I'm going to put down before it happens. I don't either. For me, I mine gets sparked by the sequence of three or four notes in a certain rhythmic pattern, which involves me playing a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'll get, maybe even just one pattern will come out and then a whole song will come from it. And that's exactly what happened with Vanta. You're still saying a very similar thing. What I was saying was by learning something new, I'm providing a stimulus for my subconscious to... Uh, get inspired. Get to almost. work. So you're doing the same thing. It's just you're going off of three notes. Maybe you wrote those three notes, but still you're looking for some sort of a stimulus that gets the, uh, that gets the gears turning. Yeah, exactly. And you just have to make sure that in that moment you're ready to act on it. Yes, exactly. Tell me if I'm right about this. So I bet you that one of the main problems that you see in King of the Riff entries or from the people who submit is that they're not always ready. They're not like primed and ready to act on their inspiration or they don't always have the facility to pull it off. And so they get stuck. Hence why they're asking you to help finish the song. But is that at all accurate? I think it just depends again on mindset, doesn't it? Like, I think that... Well, what are you finding like out of now that there's been a bunch of these? Off, like say, say we write something in a certain way, like um, we had one where you had to write a couple of parts in the mode of Dorian. And the first thing that comes into people's mind is, is that I don't know what theory is. So I don't know what Dorian is. But it's pretty straightforward to find what Dorian is on the internet. Do you know what I mean? The internet's quite a powerful resource. And then at that point, what I would do is think about the artists that I like that are known for playing in Dorian. Because at that point, it gives me an idea on what kind of sounds I need to gravitate towards. Like if you you know think about the seven different modes, each of them has their own defining characteristic about what it sounds like. You know, when you listen to Ionian, you know that it's going to be overly happy. When you listen to Dorian, it's got that unfinished kind of sound that's kind of in between the doors and Tesseract. And I think that often or not, people get bogged down by thinking about that word rather than actually acting on what it might sound like. I think that sometimes people get stuck in the details rather than actually not having the inspiration per se. Maybe the lack of understanding from what that means. I mean, this month there was loads of entries and it was to write in the style of the intro to a new action-packed anime series, which I thought was quite cool brief. A lot of people love anime series and anime films, you know, Spirit Away through to Dragon Ball Z. I think that our particular crowd is quite into that kind of thing. And I thought that's why it was good brief. And, you know, loads of people got inspired by it. And it's just a case of listening and observing and picking up on those things that you said, you know, trying to add these might be a new technique or a different way to write. And again, Japanese anime has certain characteristics about it that you can follow to help you with that brief. And it's just about understanding that. Yeah. So what I would do is take the brief, take what those characteristics are, learn how to do them, and then drop it for a few days. 
Exactly. Then sit down to write. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the main characteristics of of that particular style of music that you see is the 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 running of chords through the circle of fifths. So then you would have like you'd play your root, then you play your fourth, then you play your seventh, then you play your third, and it runs like that in a lot of the intro sequences of anime. And there's certain sounds, you know, like if you listen to the to the Japanese style of writing, there's certain things that they do that's outside of what we in the Western world do. And it's just about understanding them and finding them and then adding it to your vocabulary. But again, so some people get stuck in thinking about, I have nowhere to start. But ironically, the first thing to start doing with all of these briefs is just listening to some music. <laughs> what do you think people do when they get the briefs? Like sit there and overthink it? Like, yeah. Okay. I mean, if, if you didn't know what Dorian was, what would your first reaction be? <laughs> like I didn't know that it was a mode or didn't know the mode itself? Didn't know the mode itself. Obviously, I explained. I'd go learn it. Exactly. I'd go learn it, but I wouldn't try to write something with it right then and there. I would just go learn it. Yeah. And then fuck around with it and then drop it. Yeah. That's what I would do. I think it's just about like, yeah, you know, people want to write something, but... Ultimately, you need the understanding. So, okay, I would learn it. And then what I would do is I'd look up, I'd be like, I'd look up what's a f some famous songs that are in this or like kind of like what you said. And But I would take the step of learning something with Dorian in it. So I wouldn't just learn Dorian. I'd learn something cool, something that I enjoy that is in Dorian or yeah. is heavily in Dorian. I, that would be day one. Then I would drop it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you think about it, like we were talking about, the, you know, the scales and the modes, and the one, th the one major thing that changes between them is, or what you're looking for in these is the the way the intervals that you like the sound of, and they change depending on what key or mode you're in to what actually sounds good. And I think a good example of this is the six seven one chord progression of metal. <laughs> You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, the Iron Maiden oh, yeah. chords. Yeah, it's used in a lot of metal. And in the minor key, it sounds great. But the moment you put it in to Mixolydian or Dorian, it doesn't sound very good. So it's that's I, that's kind of where I would start. I'd try and find what intervals sound nice working within this particular scale to find me chord sequences. And then the moment you have a chord sequence, then you can expand on it. So again, it's just a, you know, difference in how, you know, it work. I mean... Trying to find the bands that use it is obviously a really good way to do it as well. And as I said, Tesseract and The Doors both use that scale and it sounds great. So real quick, just in case people don't know what King of the Riff is, explain it. Every single month, I will post out a brief to write music to. And it's a competition that we run every single month on Riff Hard. And it's a way to expand your songwriting capabilities by putting restrictions on how you can write and I think that you've had this before, Al. When you pick up a guitar, it seems like there, well, there is an infinite amount of possibilities to write to. So by putting on some parameters, it actually puts you into a space you can only write within these restrictions. And if anything, it stimulates songwriting. You see people do this all the time, and I used to do it. I mean, I still do it now when I write music. I always write with a particular phrase or a word in mind. And I think it, it helps by giving you somewhere to go to and something to explain because at the end of the day, music is just a form of language. And how do you judge these? I 
listen to see how well they followed what I've asked for. And then I guess from that point on, once you see if the criteria was met, then it's just, what do I like better? Exactly. Like, obviously, there is a certain amount of bias on my side. That's why we pick a top 10. So the top 10 then goes to the group to be picked by the peers of the group, the members themselves. Yeah, you know, that's kind of how we do it with the URM Nail the Mix mix competition. Uh, That's why I don't pick the winners. Um, We pick the top 20. And then the community votes. That way, you know, if someone doesn't understand why somebody won, I mean, it's just like, hey, more people liked it. Obviously, this person did something that more people like. Exactly. I mean, you can argue with my tastes, but how are you going to argue with everyone's tastes? Exactly. Yeah. Um, What kind of prizes do they win? This month was crazy. So (laughs) are you ready for this long list? Yeah. First place prize was a multi-scale seven-string guitar from Schecter. Two Hughes and Kettner Nano Spirit amplifiers. Origin effects pedals, two of them. A a Revival Drive and a Cali 76. Jay-Z microphones, Black Hole. uh, We had stuff from Neural DSP, Impact Studios, TuneCore, so you can release an album through them for for free for a whole year. Drumforge JST. The String Source, Get Some Strings. It's pretty wild, and there's probably one or two that I've forgotten from that list. (laughs) Pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, and if you think about it, you only have to write two to four minutes of music. Not only, but that's not the main point. The the winning isn't the point. The point is is just to expand on your vocabulary of songwriting. The 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 prizes are there almost as a trophy. Do you know what I mean? Just as like, hey, you did a good job. Here you go. Well, absolutely. I think a lot of people want to get better at writing. A lot of people want to write professionally. Uh, They want to improve their songs, but they kind of they don't know what to do other than just jam or kind of tinker around. When you start to actually have criteria with which to work, you develop a new sense of how to create. Like it really helps you push the boundaries of who you are and it helps develop your ideas. Exactly. And and even, you know, if anyone's on, I mean, a lot of Riff Hub members listen to this podcast, but it's not about writing something and thinking that maybe, you know, it's completely finished to submit it. At least then you've submitted and you've tried it. That's the whole point. If it's not for you, it's not for you in this moment, but at least you gave it a shot. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've noticed local bands and local musicians, meaning not professional musicians do that's one of their biggest mistakes ever. I've noticed this since the beginning of my career when I was recording local bands. So I remember like back in 2004, 2005, when my band was a local band and we were trying to get signed, we would play with other local bands that had been around way longer than us. Like they'd been around for like 10 years or 15 years and they were playing the same eight songs that they had been playing for the past 10 or 15 years and they didn't have new songs. And, you know, and then when recording, I would notice that I'd get those bands. And then now some of them are still around and they're still playing the same eight songs. And all right. So then I noticed when, when doing Nail the Mix that uh, a lot of people, uh, not Nail the Mix, URM will do these one-on-ones. And I'd find out that 
people would be working on the same mix for two years straight, one song <laughs> for two years straight. And one of the things that the Nail the Mix Mix competition does is it forces you to finish something because the only way you're going to get better is by finishing something, then moving on to the next, finishing it, then moving on to the next. Exactly. The same thing happens with songwriting. If you don't learn to finish songs or at least put them down and move on to the next, you're not going to get better. So this gives you a structure with which to do that. At the end of the day, what really matters is not whether you win this competition. What matters is that you're writing more often, you're writing to a set of criteria, and it's becoming a part of what you do. That's how you're going to get better. At the end of the day, getting better is what matters. That's what will determine if this turns into something real for you. Exactly. And the good thing about having criteria is it really hones in on what you enjoy writing. It puts you into different situations that maybe you hadn't thought of before. And, you know, you might stumble across something, think, oh, I write this really well. I really enjoy this doing this. So then it almost repurposes exactly how you approach songwriting. Absolutely. So you want to up your writing and guitar game, riffhard.com. I'll talk to you next time, Brown. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.